Diabetes Late Night. Her name was Lola. Hello and welcome to Diaries Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Divabetic. Thank you for joining us tonight and reliving my childhood. I love that song. And if you haven't guessed by now, our August musical inspiration is a Grammy, Tony, Emmy award-winning icon with 50 top 40 hits, 12 number one singles, and more than 800, I'm sorry, more than 85 million albums sold worldwide. Yes. Barry Manilow. I'm so excited, and uh, I'm so excited about tonight. I actually went to see Barry in concert in Newark, New Jersey last week. It's the first time, I think, in 12 years that I've ever seen the artist right before the show. So I've been living in a Barry Manilow world all week, getting ready for the show. He's, he's truly amazing to see live. I mean, he's so comfortable on stage that it really caught me surprised when I did some research and found out uh, that it took him a while to embrace his success. But once he did, he started having fun with it. He admits that it was acting classes that helped him overcome fears of letting fans down night after night. He worked with a New York acting coach to break down the lyrics of his songs like you would the words to a script and focus on telling a story rather than just hitting the high notes. And uh, honestly, I had my free glow stick, and I thought he was just amazing. So those acting classes paid off. Now, not only do I admire him for his talent as a songwriter, producer, musician, and entertainer, but I also look up to him for speaking his truth. As a gay man, uh, I could identify with the fact that Barry Manilow was brave enough to come out, and he was later in life in his 70s, but I still think in today's political climate and all the chaos surrounding us, it was a very brave thing to do. And although some people say, why would he bother, I, I truly say amen, Barry, because I often compare that experience of admitting your sexual identity or other known as coming out to admitting your diabetes diagnosis. And both journeys to me are rooted deeply in self-acceptance. Once you accept yourself or your diabetes health, you could experience a peace of mind. Your secret is no longer something that could burden you. And it doesn't mean that every day can be sunny, but it does mean you are living your truth. And I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, Barry is also outspoken about living with a heart health condition known as AFib that I'll be talking to Patricia Addy Gentle about later on in the show. So joining me tonight, uh, we have Patricia Addy Gentle. We also have poet Lorraine Brooks. The first lady of Def Jam, Allison Williams, will be here. And a special guest, the diabetes advocate, mentor, and blogger, Fat Cat Anna will be joining us. Plus, we've got more great music from Barry Manilow on the Essential Barry Manilow album, courtesy of Sony Music. Now, Barry has written and performed songs for musicals, films, and commercials, including corporations such as McDonald's, Pepsi-Cola, and Band-Aid. 
He has also, I thought this was interesting, produced Grammy Award-winning albums for Dionne Warwick, Nancy Wilson, and Sarah Vaughn, among others. Um, But it's his music that we're talking about tonight. So I'm excited because this whole show, the theme of this show tonight is all based around the next song I'm going to play. I, I really wanted to tackle the idea of how we deal with or face challenges related to diabetes health. And I thought this song captured it perfectly. I made it through the rain. So let's listen to that song, courtesy of Sony Music. I made it through the rain. I kept my world protected. I made it through the rain. I kept my point of view. I made it through the rain and found myself respected by the others who got rained on too and made it through. Wow, I love that song. Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your number one fan hello, Mr. David Bedwick. Uh, next month, i got to tell you, is our ninth annual mystery podcast. You're not going to want to miss this. It's, it's, a, it's a highlight of my year. This year's podcast entitled Tomorrow is Not on the Menu stars my good friend, health and wellness guru, High Voltage. She's written several books about uh, the dangers of too much added sugar in your diet. And, you know, for several years right here in New York, I worked with High Voltage to glamorize good health for young women at risk of affected by and living with diabetes in New York area schools. Uh, she walks the talk. It's an honor to have her join the show and be part of all the fun. Uh, so make sure to tune in on Tuesday, December 27th uh, at 6 p.m. Uh, in the meantime, my cast will be rehearsing, and one of my cast members is here right now. She plays a narrator, but she's actually going to be acting with us this year. Please welcome to the show, Lorraine Brooks. Hello, Lorraine. Good evening, Max. How are you? I'm great. <laughs> I, I've been I'm in a Barry Manilow fog, Lorraine. I, I I can't stop playing his music. It's just been uh, I love af- it. after I, seeing I love him at Newark. Voice. Yeah, I mean he's one of those artists that to me kind of sneaks up on you. You don't really know you like him as much as you do until you really start listening, and then you say to yourself, "Wow, I really like this guy." <laughs> So I feel the same way you do. I've been listening to his music too for the last yeah, couple of days. Yeah, or you find yourself singing off. You sing your, you, you find yourself singing off key with him at his concerts, like I did. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you know. So, but but the thing about it is, like after listening to that, in, it's a two CD, uh, the essential Barry Manilow. It's two CDs, or I don't know what they call that today. It's a lot of songs, I guess, for the kid to stream. And uh, there was a lot of the themes of his songs were really about overcoming something, you know, like looks like we made it. And the song I just played, I made it through the rain. And I thought that would be a great topic for tonight's um, podcast about transformations and how they happen. And so I was wondering, uh, you know, since so many people brush off issues related to diabetes, not the people living with it, but the people around them, I was wondering if you've uh, ever felt that way, that people don't really give you the time or the attention you deserve when you're talking about some of the struggles you've had managing your diabetes? Um, well, yeah, I, I, I suppose that's true. I think, though, that it is more that people want to 
do something to help you feel better. I, I'm not sure that it's that they don't really give you the time, you know, to express yourself. I think that, you know, friends and family always want you to be doing your best and be in your best <clears throat> your best place. So I think their tendency is to help you, you know, focus on the positive and sort of not really uh, deal too much with the negative side of things. And, you know, that's not, of course, always realistic. And um, I think it's important to talk about the struggles because, like he said in his story, you know, it's not just in his song, rather. It's not just that, you know, you made it through the rain. It's that you made it through the rain with other people who have also made it through the rain. And you don't know that unless you let people really talk about it and really listen to them. So, yeah, I think that's very true. I agree. That's why I think community is so important for anything, you know, whether it's a health issue or, you know, like I said earlier about dealing with your sexual identity or maybe even your gender identity or your your politics, you know, your religion. Obviously, those things have come together or even like like like-minded around an interest or a hobby. But it is it is interesting. Tonight we've got some really special guests who are going to be talking about two specific struggles. One of them was a near-death struggle with COVID. And, you know, for the last couple of years, we keep hearing about uh, the concern for underlying conditions related to COVID. I was wondering, how did that affect you living with diabetes to hear every media headline or uh, talk show host talking about how, you know, your underlying condition known as diabetes is really putting you at high risk of COVID. Were you anxious or stressful about getting it? Uh, Of course. And I actually got it. I had COVID in January. Um, And um, I was one of the fortunate ones that didn't have a lot of bad symptoms. And, you know, I didn't have a lot of difficulty with it. Uh, But I didn't feel well for a good, I would say, a good three weeks. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that's true of any any condition or anything that's going around or any, you know, any, anything that, almost anything that happens in the world. The, the, The warning is always, well, you know, you have this underlying condition, so you have to be extra careful. You have to be extra careful of um, exposing yourself to certain um, viruses. You have to be extra careful of what you eat. You have to be extra careful of uh, sometimes of where you go. You have to be extra careful of even, you know, um, other medications that you take. So I think that's just part of the reality. And, you know, I've I've had type 1 for over 40 years now, so I'm kind of accustomed to that. It doesn't freak me out the way it used to. But, um, yeah, it's something to think about, and it's something that you have to remain aware of. And um, I wouldn't say to worry about it to the point where you're not functioning well, but I think you have to always take your uh, health, your your condition, and the things that you have to deal with into consideration, absolutely. Well, it's just interesting because I ride the subway in New York City every day, and I rode it all the way through covid and, you know, there's still a mask mandate in our subway. And I'm like the only person mm-hmm. who's wearing it. And if you sit down next to me without a mask, because I ride either the front or the back train, which if you don't know, those are the least crowded train uh, cars on the subway. And it just seems like everyone's gotten very willy-nilly. And I just, you know, to me, it's like, wait a minute. So many people are still getting COVID today that why would I take off my mask? 
And frankly, I learned how to carry a phone. If you told me in the 80s I was going to carry a phone around every day, I would have looked at you like you were cross-eyed. So a mask doesn't is no big deal for me. And I don't understand like how people could just ignore the mandate in New York, but they do. And so that brings me to my second topic with you before you read your poem tonight, which is just dealing with the mental health aspect of living with diabetes. This is another topic we're going to be talking to Fat Cat Anna about later on in the show. And I was just, I know you've been living with type 1 for 40 years, and you've been very outspoken about how you've handled the mental aspect, which I think is often overlooked, we agree on, uh, when we're talking about diabetes self-care. How do you think that's changing for people today, and and what would you like to say about that? Well, you know, uh, I think I feel the same way about that. I mean, obviously it has its challenges, and some of the challenges are very um, difficult to reconcile, you know, Um, and, and it does change your life in some ways. I think the same thing is true that you, that we need to talk about it, and we need to talk about it with people who we trust and who will listen. And there are some really good people out there, and of course, one of your regulars, Dr. Bev, is one of them, who um, you know understands the struggles and understands, <clears throat> excuse me, the need to address certain things, and can help you um, keep a positive spin on your life in general. But yeah, I think we got to we have to talk about not just the um the happy times or the, you know, the, the 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 surface things, but we also have to get underneath that because that's the only way you can really heal and really understand what you're going through. I know a lot of people have um, you know, emotional um uh, difficulties with this disease which takes a lot of time and energy and, and stamina and, and sometimes money, you know. Um, and so, yeah, you have to uh, – it affects every area of your life. It's not easy. But that doesn't mean you can't do it. You can do it if you have help. Right. And, and, you can't seek, and you can't ask people. for help or seek help. Ask for help or right. seek help. Exactly. That and finding, and finding uh, a absolutely. therapist. All right. Well, well, that leads us to this month's poem, Don't Give Up. Uh, a poem by our poet, <laughs> Lorraine Brooks. Take it away, Lorraine. Thank you, Max. I always enjoy um, writing poems and challenging myself to uh, write poems for your theme. So tonight I wrote a poem called Don't Give Up. You're one of my biggest fans. I just have to say that, and I love it. Um, rain comes, the rivers overflow, and the and the plains flood. Our hearts become full, and sometimes anguish and fear is what remains. Hearts ache, hands and bodies fail or become weak, powerless and fearful. Relief and painless thoughts are what we seek. Minds change, and overwhelming feelings turn to fear. It can feel hopeless. We don't know what to do or how to bear. But the rain does stop and the sun comes out. And whatever it is you're upset about, you work it through and find a way. And just as Manilow would say, you made it through the rain and kept your point of view. You learned how to deal with hurt and pain and find a pathway through. 
you learned that even on bad days, the sun's behind the clouds. And even in life's alleyways, that you can beat the odds. So buckle up and buckle down. Do what you need to do. And in the words of Barry M., we can't smile without you. <laughs> I love it. And and you joke that I am your biggest that I love everything you do, but it's true because <laughs> I feel you're you have an amazing talent for creating images and putting together words that comfort and connect and support our listeners in in their lives. And so I just feel honored every time you're on the show that you get to uh, read something for us and inspire everybody. And uh, I just, uh, you know, I think of inspiration all around me and I'm, I'm always glad that it's right next to me with you. So thank you so much for doing that. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Max. And I think we must be co-presidents of the mutual admiration society because I feel the same way about you. Thank All right, you. well, the next time I'm going to talk to you, you're going to be our narrator on Tomorrow is Not on the Menu. Tune into next month's uh, Mystery Podcast. Thank you, Lorraine. Uh, we'll, thank we'll, you, Matt. We'll be chatting with you a little bit later in the show. All right, thank you. All right, coming up, we've got our exclusive interview with the one and only Allison Williams. But first, our diva, diva musical inspiration, Barry Manilow, was born in Brooklyn. He first enrolled in the City College of New York, where he briefly studied before uh, continuing his studies in musical theater at the Juilliard School. Let's hear Weekend in New England, courtesy of Sony Music, from our diva inspiration, Barry Manilow. Last night I waved goodbye, now it seems years, I'm back in the city, where nothing is clear, but thoughts Welcome back. I had my glow stick out while I was listening to that song with my fellow Fanalos at Newark, New Jersey. He sounds so great live, by the way. If you haven't seen him and you do think you like Barry Manilow, I would urge you, yes, definitely go see him and see him on stage, just like my next guest. Uh, she's a songstress, an actress, a teacher, and a radio personality. Plus, she's the first lady of Def Jam who's living well with type 2 diabetes. Uh, this is my exclusive interview with Allison Williams. You know, Allison was really, really sick, and there were posts about her on Facebook, and I've known Allison for several years. So I, it was just so important to me when she was feeling healthy enough and strong enough that we could get her to kind of come back to the podcast and share her story. So let's listen to my interview with Allison Williams. Hi, Allison. Okay. Thanks for joining us. I'm so glad to have you back on the show. Hi, Matt. How are you? It's good to be back. Uh, I'm doing great, and it's great to have you back. You're currently touring right now with the saxophonist and flautist Najee, supporting your new rendition of Valentine Love 
that was first released, I think, back in like 1975 with Michael Henderson and Gene Carn. How, how's it going being back on the road and doing all these shows? Well, you know, Matt, it's really amazing. Um, it's, it's been a, a journey, um, and I know there's some things we're going to talk about that will uh, speak into that journey, but um, that was Norman Connors' first I think release um, was that written by, as you say, Michael uh, Henderson, rest his soul. He just passed a week and a half ago, um, and uh, he wrote it and performed it with Gene Carn. It was a big radio hit then, and uh, we're, we are surprisingly and quite pleased to see that it is garnering radio attention on its own. Um, Najee, uh, somewhere in between the, the, the pandemic, called and said, I want to do this song uh, through um, – a friend of ours, uh, Chris Big Dog Davis, who's an incredible producer and has so many songs at any given time on the charts for uh, various uh, smooth jazz artists. And he said, um, Allison Najee wants to do this song, Valentine Love, he wants you to do the vocal. So, of course, I said, yes, I've known Najee forever, and uh, he is the small but, uh, what's the word, small but powerful uh saxophone piece that you hear in my classic song, Just Call My Name. Uh, it's very, it's, it's, it's the smallest signature I've ever seen. But But it adds so much to the overall composition uh, and orchestration of the song. And like I said, we, uh, we came up between Queens, him and Queens, me in Harlem, him in some Harlem, and the various musical circles. So he asked me to do this vocal. I did the vocal. The pandemic raged on, and finally, uh, we were able. He was able to release his newest CD, Savoir Faire, uh, back in May. Um, he dropped a couple of singles in uh, March and April uh, before the full release of the CD. And as I said, radio and people and uh, the various platforms decided they not only wanted to select from his instrumental offerings, but they loved this vocal uh, that, I, that I laid down. So uh, London, the London market has chosen it as a single, and it's just that's what they play, and various other platforms, like I said, enough so that he called me and said, Allison, uh, I know you already have some dates that you're doing in, you know, around and so on and so forth, but I have a tour, and I think it will be good if you come out and do some of these dates so that we can do um, some double duty. And by that I mean uh, bring some more awareness to the track since it's already taken on a life of its own and prepare something that um, will be significant enough to present as a package so that in you know, 2023 we have something for the promoters that's viable and that they can consider a moneymaker and they'll book the package and we'll do a tour, you know, an actual tour. Uh, but right now Absolutely. this is just us being good, good business people and, good, and, and, and diligent independent artists, you know, and that's how I come to be traveling with Najee right now. And it's so exciting, Allison, because this is so uh, 180 different from where you were in 2019 to be at this place right now where I know you're in Martha's Vineyard right now, but you're just in Costa Rica to be touring again. But let's go back to um, December 2019. We should tell everyone you are living with type 2 diabetes, but in, um, in December 2019, COVID struck. Tell us a little bit about what happened. Well, despite uh, being, despite, uh, you know, having been uh, uh, vaccinated and everything and done all my due diligence, uh, had 
quarantined in New York all through 20 and 21. It took that long, but eventually um, having an underlying condition, I was struck by COVID. And as we've come to know, uh, COVID, has, it, it, it seems to hit everybody differently. You know, we, we lost a lot of people in 2020 um, and even some in, 20, in 2019, which I am convinced there was COVID and we just didn't know what it was or how to call it. Um, but when I got sick, it took me to a place where I, well, it, it rendered me in a coma for six days from the 26th of December to January 1st. And um, the, the first thing, uh, being on a ventilator, um, like I said, going into a coma and, and, and having that strong a reaction to it, uh, the thing I take away most is the way that the community, and when I say the community, I mean the musical community, the theater community, and all the people that uh, I consider to be my friends and extended family, everyone came together across the country and around the world to pray for me and to be on one accord and to be on one page. And I am a living miracle and I am a living example as to what happens when you put prayer in the picture and prayer does change things. And I believe that um, along with all Absolutely. the really talented doctors that worked on me and with me and, and rallied around me because I was having complications, which is what yeah, brought so, the coma so, Right. So back up a minute. So, okay, so you're living with type 2 diabetes. You start to experience, I would think, like flu-like symptoms. What led you, um, how did you get to the hospital, and then how did it quickly uh, magnify into something that became a coma, just so people understand a little bit of the trajectory of what happened? Well, I, can, I, you know, I have been traveling uh, a, a little bit here and there, being very careful as to, you know, how I traveled and if I needed to travel. If I didn't feel it was worthwhile, I just didn't because of the threat of what was going on. But I had a couple of dates that were already pre-booked. It seemed like, you know, they, I knew that the people who were giving the events were doing everything they were supposed to do and beyond to keep everyone safe. Nonetheless, you know, myself as well as a few other people that attended the event did get, did get COVID, but they, none of them got it to the extent that I got it. Um, I can reference back to the 18th, um, coming out of New York on the 19th, uh, coming home and just feeling extremely fatigued. Um, and when I say extremely fatigued, I mean like I, I was, felt like I was dragging myself around. You know what I'm saying? I couldn't get enough rest no matter how much I slept. And it, was, it felt uh, dangerous to me because I wanted to take my medicine. I wanted to, you know, to, uh, to, to continue to do what I need to do on a daily basis. But I was so tired and fatigued that I could barely stand up and toast an English muffin. And, like, you can't take the medicine without eating. So I was very frustrated very frustrated on top of feeling very fatigued. So on Christmas Eve, I went to the CVS and took and, and got a test. And um, I waited in line. Uh, and I have to always talk about it because they don't have a way for you to take the test in the store. They can give you a shot in the store, but you can't test in the store. So you have to go through the drive-thru. I don't have a car, so that's odd, standing between two cars, like you are a car, sick as a dog, <laughs> trying to get this test. Unfortunately, before the test could come back in 48 hours, I was already rushed to the hospital. Christmas Day went by. I, I just remember saying, oh, I feel so horrible. If I could just get to the first of the year, I'll be good. I just need to, uh, 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 I got this to do, that to do, ooh, uh, I need to do, you know, all the things you think about when, you know, you, you know the end of the near, year is me and you're just waiting for it to all come on. Let's get, let's get going to the new beginning. 
But I, right. like I said, I was so sick. Um, on that Sunday, a friend of mine called me, and they had talked to my sister friend Lydia, who lives down in North Carolina, and said, she said, just give Allison a call a little bit later. She's not feeling well, and, you know, see if she needs anything. My sister friend Lydia is just coming off her chemo, and um, so she wasn't really in a position to say, let me jump in the phone and come check on you. So Rex calls me, and uh, Rex says, uh, what do you what do you need? And I said maybe if you, if you bring me something to eat, then I can take my medicine and I'll feel a little better and, and we'll be okay. And by the time he got to my house, I was like, I don't want to eat. I want to go to the doctor. And then about ten minutes later, once I got dressed, he said, So you want me to drive you to the doctor? I said, No, I want you to call an ambulance because I just felt myself thinking. You know, I had this feeling of you're not going to get any better. And if he drives you to the hospital and you walk in into triage or whatever, you're going to sit there or lay there in the hallway, and that won't be good because right. you're not something's not right. If you go in on an ambulance with lights and sound and, and a full production, <laughs> full high production value, you'll <laughs> oh, get more attention. All the diva came out. Yeah. All and the diva right. came it, right on did it out. Work? The diva was thinking. He was putting the show together, putting it together. <laughs> yeah. I was getting, I was trying to figure out the way to get the most attention because I knew I wasn't going to be able to give, you know, give them information. And sure enough, I remember riding in the ambulance and saying to myself, wow, when I moved down here in North Carolina, this was a ride I had not anticipated. And the cars were going past and you could see, and then I, and then I passed out. And then I got to the hospital, and I think for about three minutes I woke up in the emergency room, triage, whatever, and they asked me a couple of questions and then gone again. And that was it. Um, I, I'd lost those six days, which I thought were three. And um, they tell me I opened my eyes on the 1st of January, and uh, my angel, uh, Valerie Simpson, had gotten a message to the hospital because they were having trouble bringing me out of the coma. They were having trouble uh, rallying. I wasn't rallying the way I should have, and they were concerned. And um, she said, play her music in her ear. Play her music in her ear. She'll hear you, and she'll come back. And sure enough. The, the nurse downloaded my music on, onto, the, uh, onto her phone, and, and everyone was mad at her the day before because she didn't do it the day that she, she was asked to do it because her phone went dead. Not like, these people are trying to save lives. They don't have time to play with you on a playlist, you know. It was just so funny <laughs> the way it was coming about. But sure enough, when that, when that woman played the music in my ear, I remember clear as day, um, I opened my eyes and I responded to her. Apparently, as they said, then, she'll hear the music, she'll think it's time for places, and she'll get to the stage. <laughs> so what So what was it like then? Because you woke up, I'm, I'm assuming, with the ventilator. You are, you know, you depend on your voice as a vocalist and entertainer. You've been, like you said, you were in a coma for six days. You're, you weren't really managing your diabetes because of how fatigued you were. How, what was this recovery like? Like, did you, I mean... Did it take weeks to kind of even gain back the strength to get out of bed and handle things? And how did you handle your? Oh voice? my gosh, I, I um, you know, before I went into the hospital, I was managing my diabetes up until those last couple of days. It was like not on schedule as it should have been. But I really work hard as an artist because it's not diabetes is not for anybody, but it's really not for somebody who's on the road for a living because a lot of your care is predicated on a uh, eating correctly, eating on schedule. Do you know what I'm saying? Eating the right things, and sometimes it's just not possible 
with the kind of schedule or the, 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 the uh, how can I put it, the flux of a schedule um, when you're living the life of an entertainer. But I was working it out. And like I said, when COVID jumped on me and I kind of felt it must have been something because I'd never felt that before, um, I just had to, you know, uh, just I did as best as I could until I couldn't. So after coming out of the coma and still being on the ventilator, I um, I was – I guess more than anything, I knew I was connected to a machine, and they constantly kept telling me, you know, we, we still have some things attached to you. Now, mind you, I don't know how they had it attached because some things were going through my arms and what have you, but I'm sure there were things going through other orifices, and I don't need to know about that. And they were all, <laughs> was all I was all hooked up, but it's all behind you, so you don't know. It's just, oh, it's, oh. and I just remember shaking and and because they have to keep all that equipment you know calm and cool it was cold it was so cold they had to bring a machine in just to put in a a hose under my covers because they couldn't give me another blanket they said we're going to crush you but I wouldn't get warm and I was nervous and I said if they're pulling something out of me it's definitely going to hurt and I'm awake ah but it was not as bad as I thought I did. I never really had any pain, but I do know that as I laid there for six days, um, I lost the use of certain things. Uh, my arms. I couldn't lift my arms over my head. Um, I I knew once I became conscious that I had to move my feet and my fingers and my hands because I, I tried to write something and I couldn't write. I brought home the piece of paper. I thought I was writing my name, but apparently not. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, different things. Um, they gave me occupational therapy. They gave me speech therapy. They gave me uh, physical therapy. I didn't know I wasn't going to walk straight. And when I'm, the nurse asked me to walk straight to her, and I veered off to the right. <laughs> and she's like, no, 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 I'm over here. I'm over here. But I had no, you know, my equilibrium was off. Um, my speech was uh, challenged with certain words and, and, the, and the timing of my speaking. Um, and getting certain words out or thinking uh, as quickly. But all of these things that we take for granted are messages that come from the brain. And if the brain is not firing off those messages in a certain way and they're not reaching those certain places, you know, that, that, that make the action, you can't do it. I couldn't run my lips, my tongue across my teeth or my, my tongue around my lips, my, around my mouth. I couldn't lift my eyebrow or wink or teeth or drink from a straw. I, I thought I was putting food in my mouth with a fork. All of it was getting in. It was, it was, it was really, you know, I, I can look back and laugh because, to me, I, that's the way it, I was able to come through it. But one thing that I never had a problem with was my voice. When I began to speak, of course, I didn't have a lot of volume, but my voice was there. I never questioned if I was singing sing again. I never questioned. I, like, you know, sometimes you can have a fear, like, oh, my God, am I ever going to sing again? Oh, my God, what's it going to sound like? Oh, my God, what my, did they put something down my throat? Because I was unconscious. I never got to tell them, don't mess around where the trachea is, because that's my voice. That's my, my work. I never got to tell anyone that. All right. We're going to hear the second part of Allison Williams' amazing journey uh, coming back to the stage after experiencing COVID. And, you know, in that first part, she mentioned something that I just want to touch on. When Luther Vandross had a stroke related to mismanagement of type 2 diabetes, we also played music to bring him out of out of his coma. And uh, I thought it was really interesting that Allison said the same thing. So uh, now we're going to play It's a Miracle by Barry Manilow, courtesy of Sony Music. I, I mean, these songs kind of work 
for whatever reason, if, uh, and I'm enjoying it. So let's listen to It's a Miracle. And I'm so thankful my friend Allison Williams is uh, doing, uh, is not only well, but living that diva life all over again. second part of our interview um, with singer-songwriter Allison William. And let me tell you, we've got some great guests coming up. We've got the uh, diabetes blogger of the roller coaster ride of diabetes, Fat Cat Anna, joining us, plus our own uh, Patricia Addy Gentle, going to be coming up later after we hear more about Allison Williams. In this segment, uh, she's going to tell us what, where she got her voice back, what it's been like to perform on stage, and also give me some pointers on how to be pitch perfect should be a fun interview you had to be afraid a little bit of what your future was going to be like and i just think the listeners would appreciate to know like what your mindset was to get you back to where you are today well first of all i just kept praying and i know that i serve an incredibly faithful god and so i figured you know this is not the end because it was the end and it would have been it it would have been the end but it wasn't and you're here um, I began to, like I said, speak as I was talking to people who had been around me and, and involved in my situation. They told me what had happened and, and, and what, you know, the fact that I had been under for six days and, you know, so on and so forth. And so I knew I had come through a really uh, tumultuous time, and if I come through that time, I can go a little further. I wanted to get home. And so everything I know they wanted me to do to try to help help them help me, that's what I did. Um, you know, I sat up as often as I could. They had me, they were trying to get me to, you know, expel fluids from my lungs. I was a spitting machine. That's all I did all day long. I don't mean to be graphic, but that's what I did. No, it's good. And and so what did you, what did you take away from this experience? So what did you take away from the experience? Like when you look at it today, is there, was there any lesson in this that you're still applying to your life today and especially to oh, your absolutely. diabetes management? A- absolutely. Absolutely. I, I believe that, uh, first of all, our health is, our, is the thing we should maintain the most. Uh, it was not as if I wasn't trying to do all that I know to do, but unfortunately sometimes sickness catches up with us, be it COVID, be it the, diabetic, the diabetes ketoacidosis, it, it caught up. So coming out of it, of course, I must be even more diligent to make sure that I stay healthy. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm cautious uh, to a fault of how I go through my daily life and um, being blessed enough to come back and, and recover 
uh, not only physically, but to have my voice intact. I never worried about my voice. I, 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 I certainly wanted the, the power of my volume to come back and my stamina to come back, but I knew that the notes were there. I, I would just sometimes hum a little bit or ah, and I knew I didn't have any high notes, but I knew they'd come back. But my middle and my bottom was right there. I knew I didn't have a lot of power. I didn't know or, or, or volume, but it, it, it was just even when I knew that there were certain words and certain uh, ways of pronouncing things that I was being challenged with, when I sang, I didn't have any of that. I didn't stumble or muddle any of my words, and so I knew that I, that God had was 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 working on restoring me. Um, it, I, I stayed dormant from January uh, until April, and in April I started moving around just a little bit. I had a couple of speaking engagements. I had one engagement that that needed me to sing, but not for any extensive period of time. So I was able to see what it was. Um, I was able to hear myself for the first time. I went to visit. Uh, the Birch Jazz Festival for a meeting, and Najee was on the bill, and he said, well, Allison, if you want to, you can come and do a number with us. And I said, okay, I'm going to take that challenge and see um, what what it is. Not only do I sound like, but what do you sound like on a world-class sound system with world-class musicians behind you? That's a whole other thing. You can sing in your living room all day long, but you're just singing into the air. What will you do when you hit an actual stage? And so it all turned out really well. Um, I was glad to not only share it publicly, but to share it with uh, my musical uh, family. And uh, I haven't stopped since. Um, I put together the dates I know, it's that amazing. I already. Yeah, I put together some you, dates. You're on the Back to Life. Oh, we should tell everyone you're on a Back to Life tour now. I mean, exactly, it's incredible that you. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So now that That's we're talking about I, singing, we wanted to ask you a question about singing because we all. You know, we're all coaches on reality TV show competitions, and we also know that you uh, you teach as well as entertain. So you're a songwriter, mm-hmm. you're an entertainer, you're an entrepreneur, and you're a teacher. So I- I've always been confused by these terms, and I know a lot of my listeners are too. Pitch, tone, and phrasing. When you know when you're watching Simon Cowell and they talk about pitch or tone or phrasing, can you just tell us quickly what those three terms mean? And why, like on a singing competition, someone like Simon is looking at that in a contestant? Well, I would imagine in a competition, you want to find someone who's able to, uh, it's it's one thing to be able to sing, it's another thing to know how to sing, to know the uh, working, the rudimentary end of it, and the working parts that go into it. I tell students and people all the time, you sing with your whole mouth, not just your voice, but your tongue, your teeth, and your lips, <laughs> as it were. So in using your entire facial structure to actually be able to sing and, and, and bring forth sound and bring forth notes, pitch speaks uh, to note, speaks to the, uh, the the actual note and the tone of, and every note has a tone. If you go up the scale of a, of a piano, each one of those notes that you hit, each one of those is a note, and the note has a tone. So you want to be in tune. You want to be. You want to. You, you just want to be in tune. So the pitch is very important. And you talk about tone. Tone is going to be different for everyone because everyone's voice has a different tone. Some people's voice is smoky. Some people's voice is bright. Some people's voice is deep, and some people's voice is is is, is light and and high pitch. So your tones, although they'll be different, that you need to know what your tone is and 
and and work and to seek to perfect your tone uh, and to uh, make sure that when you sing a song, you bring the right colors and tones to those lyrics to the song. That's what tone is to me. Uh, and and you, what so is phrasing? Tone, phrasing? And phrasing. Okay, phrasing can be different to anyone. Uh, someone could sing uh, a song one way, and another person can make musical choices to change phrasing uh, and, 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 and do it their way. Um, the musical phrasing in R&B, uh, soul music, is different from the musical phrasing uh, choices that you have in traditional jazz. So your phrasing and the way you choose to sing the lyrics is 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 as is as important as any other uh, part of the process. That the choices you make in your phrasing and that you want to be clear, you want to be articulate, you want to know when it's okay to take uh, artistic license and maybe not have S T and be very uh, uh, on point with that, but you can really be a little more uh, uh, those things go because because the the song calls for it but you have to know what that is and and so those are the, those are the those are the things that he'd be looking for uh, someone like a Simon Cole Powell would be looking for in a con, in a contestant uh to to see that they've been honing their craft I love it that was they've our master class in Allison Williams <laughs> I love it two Say more questions again? before we let you go um Barry Manilow is our musical inspiration this month and Barry Manilow uh, produced one of your friends, and you actually do a show around her. He produced uh, Phyllis Hyman. He one of my favorite songs of all time, somewhere in my lifetime. I'm just curious because yeah. you are you're working on a one woman show around Phyllis Hyman. What is, I, I know this is hard to say, but what is it about Phyllis Hyman as a peer? Did you really that you truly appreciate? Uh well, I've been actually doing the Phyllis Hyman tribute show for a while now. Uh, it's called Old Friend. Allison Williams sings tribute to the legendary Phyllis Hyman. The thing I appreciated about Phyllis, having looked at her as an artist, and, you know, obviously I was a fan, but then to have had the opportunity to become a friend and then a sister friend, um, through in, 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 in all things that I knew about Phyllis, the thing I loved about her most was her honesty, her honesty as a person, her honesty as a mentor, her honesty as a musician and a, and a performer. Everything she did, she did honestly and full out and with no apologies, and I appreciated that about her most. I love it. All right, and here's our final question. We want to get your response to something that Sean Stockman said from Boys to Men. He said that R&B has lost its identity because it has to compete with the bravo of hip-hop today. What are, what's your response to that? I agree 115%. And I think he put so it so well. So is R&B, I heard that is R&B well. coming back? I think that R&B has lost its identity because we have um we, we we've let well how can i put it when he says the bravo of hip-hop it's kind of like saying hip-hop came along and and dipped its toe in the r&b uh waters and did just enough you know you're like you know how you have to give uh you have to give a for effort you know and then if you mm-hmm. put enough pyrotech and enough dancers and you take off enough clothes and you know you give the shock value and the whole bit you know the bravado of it all can make you think that you're looking at something that really is steeped in excellence or steeped in integrity, and it's not. Uh, it, it is what it is, but it's not. It's not what R&B has had been bred to be. R&B has a pedigree, 
that's that that goes back many 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 years uh and so we're not seeing the quality and so that's how you lose the identity because folks look at it and go ooh ah you know what i'm saying and 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 then they take it for what it is um but one thing i can say for sure Everyone eventually has to go around and come back and realize the root. And even the younger generation or the younger people that consume music, streaming and Spotifying and it's, everything's in the palm of your hand, they get to hear other music. Uh, for example, the stylings of a Bruno Mars or Soul Sonic or those songs that they'll cover, and they go, wow, I didn't know what? Music had a bridge. Music had a, uh, you know, not just a chorus or not just a hook. You know what I'm saying? And it, and they had a modulation and an outro and a breakdown and all of these different elements, and they get to listen to the older music. And they're not stupid. They just, you know, it's what's given to them, and they take it and make the best of it. But once they discover the other things that led to where they are, they are extremely open to it, and they, they can't get enough of it. So we're bringing uh, the identity of R&B back with music, uh, even though it's in the smooth jazz uh, genre, with the music of Najee, with the other music that I'm, a, I'm about to put out. I have a really wonderful uh, deal that's going down right now. I'll come back, Max, and give you all the, uh, the, the, the gory details. I can't speak into it right now, but we're about to ink a deal, and it's going to really um, shine a light on myself as well as a lot of, a lot of other artists like myself who come from an R&B background but um, have found it difficult to, um, you know, really find the, find the platform to stand on because it's just overcrowded with mediocrity. I love it. That was Allison Williams. You could tell she's a ball of um, light and just she's back, everybody. We're just, we were so excited to have her on the show. All right, coming up, we've got Fat Cat Anna. I'm so excited she's on the call. She's going to talk to us about her life experience living with diabetes, tell us what it's like to be a diabetes advocate, mentor, and a blogger today. And then our very own Patricia Addy Gentle is going to join us, tell us about her personal journey, as well as Barry Manilow's uh, health issues that he's been dealing with and why he's so outspoken about AFib and wanting everyone to be aware of that. Right now we're going to play another song. It's a little cheesy, I know, but this is my whole Barry Manilow moment, so please go with me as I play. Looks like we made it. I'm dedicating this to Allison Williams. I love it. That's Barry Manilow all night. Pamela is in the house. My next guest is a diabetes advocate, man, man, mentor, 
and blogger. I'm so excited I've been waving my glow stick. I'm getting tongue-tied. Um, she's going to share her experience <laughs> living with type 1 for over several decades, and she has a very popular blog, The Roller Coaster Ride of Diabetes. Please <laughs> welcome to the show for the very first time, Fat Cat Anna. Hello. Welcome. Hello. I hope you can hear me. Yeah, we're having a little bit of uh, difficulties with our connection tonight. I don't know why, but, yes, we can, and we're so glad you're calling in from Canada, so we appreciate that. Yes, but I'm I'm kind of tearing up at that last song, Looks Like We Made It. It's like, that is the perfect song for Alan. It's like, I feel like I'm surrounded by stars here right now. I feel like I'm in New York City with you, Max, right now, and I'm just like, oh, wow, I'm so excited to be here with you all. We're excited to have you, and hopefully one day that will happen in real life. It would be great to have you come down to New York City and share some time with me. I would love it. Um, All right. I've been following you. I've been following you on Twitter for a while now, and I was excited that you could make time to join us tonight and tell us a little bit about your experience living with type one diabetes. So, tell us about what we like to call your diva to diagnosis story. When were you first diagnosed, and how long have you been living with type one diabetes? I was diagnosed as a little five-year-old back in the 60s, 1960s. So I was there with all the divas that were performing at that time, but little in my mind did I know that, wow, I get to hear some of them on the radio. But, um, yeah, my parents thought I had um, a problem with iron deficiency, so they stuck me on all sorts of different things. I went through the normal thing that type 1 diabetics go through, like bedwetting, losing weight, and uh, voila, I became diagnosed with type 1, and I've had it now for, in my 57th year now with type 1, and it only feel I still feel like a kid at heart. <laughs> I love it, wow. So you've seen a lot of technical different uh, technology changes through those 57 years. When you were first diagnosed, how were you managing your diabetes, and then how do you manage it today? Like, what are some of, if I opened your purse, what would we have found back in the 60s, and what would we find today? Ooh, la, la, Max, I like that. Um, I'm not a bag lady, by the way. I really hate them. But uh, I started off with just one injection a day, and back in those days it was a pork insulin called, or was it beef, NPH. And I just did a jab in the morning, and as Allison was saying, you have to – really eat like a little soldier when you're on some types of insulin and so I had to eat like 8 o'clock, 12 o'clock, little snacks in between and eventually when I went back to live in England I was on a glass syringe with a needle that was meant to be used in an elephant's ass I think. It was horrible. I hated that but because back in Canada we used plastic uh, syringes but since then, I've gone on to trying out different insulins, different methods, like an air gun that delivered insulin. Um, and now I'm using various insulin pumps. I am very fortunate to know people who have good insurance, and they throw me discards. And it's not something I advise any diabetic to do because you could risk the potential hazard of either you know, going into DKA, um, you know, it's not something I would say to someone. But for myself, I like to learn all kinds of different things with technology. So now I'm using a CGM. Um, and that's a game changer, I think, for anyone who is a diabetic on insulin. Why? 
I mean, we've had people talk about it, but we'd love to hear your experience because obviously this is, if you dial it back to the 60s, this had to be an amazing moment for you to uh, use your continuous glucose monitor. I'm just wondering, like, what initially shocked you or surprised you or excited you about it? The fact that even if you're not using, say, an insulin pump, which tend to be very pricey, like I work all over the world, and we're very fortunate here in North America that we can afford these gadgets. There's other countries that can't even afford insulin, but that's another topic. But, um, yeah, if you're on insulin injections and you use an app on your phone that can keep knowledge of when you took your insulin shot, how much you gave, it's almost like a poor man's pump. And then with the added addition of using a continuous glucose monitor, and I use a Libra 2, but there's many other ones out there like Dexcom, you name it, uh, to name just a few. But it just gives you an insight as to what is happening and can warn you of when you're going high or going low. And with your healthcare practitioner helping you out or someone like me, we can help you learn how to you know, use your insulin properly because before I started using an insulin pump, that was after over 40 years of having type 1 diabetes, I was astounded at, oh, is this how insulin is supposed to work? I was just kind of throwing a dart at a board and kind of, oh, I think it's, I should take this much insulin. And then when I started on an insulin pump, I started to educate myself as to, carb counting, taking into consideration fat, fiber. And I know to any of your listeners, it may sound complicated. It is in the beginning, but if you have insight into the Diabetes Online community, there are people out there that are amazing that can help you out. I mean, social media has made a big difference in how many of us with diabetes live our lives. That's what I feel. I, I wanted to ask you about that. I would have, I would think, uh, going back to the 60s again, that it was a pretty isolated experience. I don't know if you had, uh, you could tell us if you had any di- anyone else living with diabetes in your family or at school, versus today, like you just said, where there's just an enormous wealth of community, uh, specifically online. So what, I mean, it, what was that about? I mean, how did you experience that? It had to be life-changing to see the, you know, the sheer number of other people living with diabetes today. What was it like back in the 60s? Did you know other people? Yeah. No, and that was the thing. Very Well, type 1 in children was still a very low percentage. I think we were like, I forget the percentage at the time, but it has increased over the years, of course. Population has, but I didn't really know anyone. I was in an adult hospital um, and I played up my charm, uh, of course. They would try to, like, lock me in my bed. And at nighttime, I was so hungry, I would crawl over those security bars and waltz into <laughs> the kitchen that was across the way and, like, blah, 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 you know, eat because I was hungry. And, um, yeah, it was all adults. That's all I knew every time I would go for a checkup. It's all adults. And, uh I really didn't start to meet anyone and it was very far and few between until I went to diabetes camp when I was about 12 or maybe it was a bit earlier but that was really my only time with other 
kids or people that had type 1. I had never met an older type 1 like now. I love talking to kids that are young, and I say, I'm an old fart type 1 diabetic, but I'm still young at heart. And, uh, you know, just to show them that, you know, if you take good care of yourself, you can be like me, you know, wear cat ears and uh, have fun. <laughs> so, uh, but no, it, it has changed a lot. Social media, I wish I had had this a long time ago. It makes it much easier for people. But the only problem sometimes is it's in your face all the time. You're always connected to that smartphone, which often is also running your insulin pump or your continuous glucose monitor. And it's just you're wired in all the time. And that's where I'm finding I have fatigue from that. So I try to keep my diabetes simple. So I'm very fortunate. I can easily go back and forth with either using an insulin pump or going back to multiple dose injections. And there's so many good insulins out there. And again, I'm a test guinea pig. Again, not everybody is like me. It, It can be scary. I could potentially cause harm to myself but I know what I'm doing as you'll find out with my suicide attempt later on <laughs> yeah that, that's what I wanted to uh, jump into that and talk a little bit because your blog is the roller coaster ride of diabetes and like you heard me speaking with Lorraine earlier about not just mm-hmm. the physical but the mental side of diabetes so tell us a little bit about your attempted suicide like uh, as much as you want but what led to it and and then I know you had, when you were in recovery, you were struggling with managing your diabetes in a mental health ward. So I think people would love to hear your story. Yeah, and, and it's, I'm not even sure if it's changed since I left, but it had nothing to do with diabetes, to be honest with you. To me, diabetes, I've had it for, for so long, uh, it, it's easy. I can do it with my eyes closed. It was just... Uh, something that happened here on the street that I live in and uh, caused me to just might as well be dead. And I overdosed with insulin and I was happy doing it. And I hate telling people this. I was happy. You know, who doesn't have thoughts sometimes, you know, of committing suicide? And, uh, you know, it just goes through your head. But this, I just, I wasn't scared and... um, Luckily, my husband found me, and uh, that, that's a whole different other story because police thought he had caused me to commit it. And it's like, no, 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 it's the neighbors next door calling. Anyways, um, but yeah, three weeks in a small town mental hospital being forced onto drugs because they said, otherwise, we can't help you. No therapy, and they weren't really familiar with type 1 diabetics so my pump was removed for me because it's a potential hazard I could choke myself on the tubing I guess Um, no CGM and they were just following rules that have been around I think since the 70s for insulin uh, giving you insulin injections and the food is like high carb meals that were supposed to be diabetic but it, it was not fun, and um, it, but it, I did meet other people, not other diabetics, but it did help me learn about my own mental health that I was not aware of. Like I have ADHD, I I know I have anxiety. That is a common thing with with diabetics. 
anxiety, you know, what if, what if, and depression, you know, and, and you know, you're living with this 24-7, you cannot take a break. I'd love to just be able to pull somebody's pancreas out and see what the heck is it like to be normal, but in a way, I am normal, so I make my my little mental quirks are part of me, and this is what has helped me now in approaching diabetes in a different way, that we're all superheroes with whatever is going up in our head. We are not just little soldiers that all are like a, a medical book. You know, doctors learn what they learn in, in university, but each individual has to be treated differently. So... I love how outspoken you are about it, and I really appreciate you sharing this with us tonight because, you know, everyone heard about Naomi Judd and and her taking her life, and I think, Mm, you know, there was so much sadness around it, but there wasn't enough, I don't, you know, I don't want to judge any of it, but I just feel like we need to be able to talk more openly about it. Like going back to the 60s, you would have never spoken about what you what that experience was, and so no. I'm so happy that today we can. What do you, what do you what should people take away with it if they're you know if they're having those thoughts or they know someone's having those thoughts? Does it help to talk about? I mean, does it help to talk about it? With, does it does talking openly help? Yes, yes, it does. And this is the thing. Like I have had the people warning me about coming out in the open about this you know it's going to backfire on you and it's like you know and like you say in the old days max you just didn't talk about it and then but now i like the openness yes some people don't like hearing me blah 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 about it all the time but um yeah i yeah i mean we have more now here at least here in canada i don't know about the states but um 1-800 numbers that we can call up i mean if if I'm feeling really down, I can go to that and call up a 1-800 number. But then I have other friends now have coming out about what I went through. I've heard privately from so many people that I would never have known, not that they committed suicide, but their mental health and how having diabetes for so long, and it wasn't just diabetics, it was anyone anyone was coming to me and I was I felt very blessed that people trust me to be open and honest you know it's it's part of life well I think it's gone it's gone past the taboo stage especially post-pandemic we're seeing so much so many more people Mm -hmm. having suicidal thoughts we can't just keep a secret about it we have to uh, you know be able to have a conversation around it and like you said not stigmatize people or shame them for it, but allow them to have, you know, to be able to have an open conversation about it. It's, it's like you said earlier, it's something that crosses everyone's uh, mind at some point in their life. And it's something that we should be able to talk about. And, you know, like you said, in Canada, in the U S we have the uh, 988 suicide crisis lifeline that people could call whether they're having those thoughts or someone they love are having those thoughts so i just think it it is important and coming back full circle again to the diabetes and the burnout that you mentioned the and the and the fatigue of it what kind of advice would you give someone who might be uh, listening tonight and be going through that themselves to get how did you get over how do you get over the fatigue or the um like you said the burnout of diabetes 
Well, I have to admit now, after listening to Barry Manilow, I would say, listen to Barry Manilow, because, I mean, his, <laughs> it, no, and music is what keeps me sane. There's, you know, of course, we all have. Me too. Thank you. I mean, yeah, that's and pretty it much it. And it depends. It depends on my mood. Like, I love, like, series like Death Leopard, you know, and uh, it depends on my, how I'm feeling and how my, it's, it could be classic, but music is my go-to. And also, I'm trying to keep a little journal. I was told today, I did a CBC Radio 1 interview today um, about mental illness, and as the um, doctor was telling me, she thinks I could have a best-selling book. Ugh, I don't think I have time for that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, keeping a notebook and just writing things down. And that is something I've always been very good at is writing. Um, and sadly, the blog that you are mentioning, I've really gotten lazy with doing blogging there. And that used to be my outlet for letting out steam for feeling fatigue and and again, trying to help other people who are going through similar problems. And I don't call them problems. It's just life, right? It's just with diabetes, it's a 24-7. You cannot shut it off. It's, it's, it's very hard. So just taking a walk, take some time out for yourself. You know, we all feel guilty that we have to go, go, go. And, um, you know, just do nothing. <laughs> And try to cope and at least have someone that you can talk to, that you can open up to. That is very, very important. I agree. I'm so, you've got to come back on the show, Fat Cat Anna. We love having you join us tonight and sharing that, yeah, sharing that yeah. powerful message. Except I'm going to have to start Thank you for raising awareness. Singing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we play music every month on Diabetes Late Night. I don't know if we'll get another... Uh, song, so, so much great songbook from one artist like we have tonight. But I have another song for you that I think you might enjoy. So thank you again for joining us. Coming up, we've got our own Patricia Addy Gentle. But let's hear Ready to Take a Chance again, courtesy of Sony Music. Here's Billy Manila. You know, I crank the volume so much we lose it sometimes. I really apologize for the connection tonight, but I just want to tell everyone before we go on that, again, the number is 988-SUICIDE-IN-CRISIS-LIFELINE uh, in the U.S. Uh, they have a network of over 160 crisis centers that provide 24-7 service via toll-free hotline that you could call, 988. That's for you or a friend or a loved one who might be having suicidal thoughts. And, again, I appreciate having Fat Cat Anna on tonight. Raising awareness. All right, it's time to bring back our very own Patricia Addy Gentle. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Max. How are you? I'm great, and we're so glad to have you back. You know, you haven't been on the podcast for several months. Uh, you came back a little bit last month, and I know people, our listeners, have wanted to know what's going on with Patricia Addy Gentle. And so tonight you're going to tell us a little bit about your journey over the last couple of months. So please go ahead. 
I am, and uh, actually this journey started about a year ago uh, when I first started noticing some changes in um, my breathing and being short of breath with exertion and just not feeling uh, my usual self. Um, Even when I was talking, it was hard to complete a sentence. I would start out strong, but before I could get to the end, it was like I had to pause and take a breath. I couldn't bend over to pick up anything. So I started doing some studies. I started, uh, I I saw my doctor, but we didn't get too far. I uh, self-referred myself to a pulmonologist, and we did scans and realized that there was a mass in my right lung. And of course, the radar went up, the antenna was up as being a suspicion of either pulmonary embolism or a a cancerous tumor. And it turns out that this particular mass was indeed a malignancy. It was cancer. So I have uh, had several procedures, biopsies. Uh, I had developed fluid in the lung, and that was the cause of the majority of the symptoms I was having. And so with the removal of the fluid, uh, the fluid actually in the pleural space, not the lung itself, but with the removal of that fluid, I was able to have some uh, a great deal of the symptoms alleviated. So I am much better and in a better place right now because I have a diagnosis. I know what I'm facing. I know the treatment plans so far, and I really feel good about the progress I'm making. And so do we, and you, you sound so much stronger. What was this experience like to go from healthcare advocate for other people to then being a healthcare advocate for yourself, Patricia? It was trying. (laughs) Even uh, the last scan that I had, well, um, the the patient portal um, will give you your results as soon as they are available. And so with the last scan that I had, I told myself, Maybe I'm jumping ahead because I had read results prior to being notified by my doctor's office in several instances. And then I would get a a call from the office or whatever, or maybe I called them and said, you know, I just realized that uh, they're seeing cancer sales. So I am referring myself since no one has called me. You know, I need to see an oncologist. So I found my own oncology provider. And I, you know, had taken things in my hand. But this time I had a scan maybe three weeks ago. And when the results, when I got the alert that results were available, I decided this time I would be a patient and not a provider. And I would wait because the number one thing is I have a good rapport with my provider. And I trust the office. And they know me, and they know that I'm on top of things. And I felt that if there was anything of any major significance, they would definitely give me a call. And since I did not hear from them, I felt pretty assured that everything was status quo, 
not um, any worse. I felt that I was hopefully making progress. So I did not look at the results for about 10 days until the day I had my appointment. And I went in, and um, I, I let them give me the results. And then a day later, I didn't I didn't look at it that day, but a day later I did go in to verify that what I was told was actually what I was able to see in that portal. So it is kind of difficult to go from the role of being a caregiver to being someone receiving care. But... Um, you know, it gives you, a, a, I guess it makes you more humble. It um, allows you to come from a place of the patients. Sometimes I think my thoughts are too advanced because perhaps I know outcomes. I know too much sometimes. And, you know, I do question, and I am, uh, I, I just don't take any answer. I do my research, and I am an advocate for myself. And by being in healthcare, I have friends who have gone in different areas. I chose diabetes, but I have friends who work in oncology. As a matter of fact, I worked in oncology for a short, very short time. But um, so I know my knowledge is is antiquated. <laughs> so I call those who I know are still working in the area and I share my results, and we discuss what the possibilities may be and what the plan of action might be, and then I go in with not a, a, my, my mind is not made up, but I do have some options that I can discuss in case they are not brought to my attention. Wow, I'm just blown away. I know this is like one of the first times you're really sharing this publicly. I'm just wondering, what does it feel like? You know, we talk about this, you and I, all the time on our podcast about asking people to share their experiences. What's it like for you to be the one sharing this tonight? How does it feel? I I guess it's, it's a sense of relief in a way. There are so many people who do know, but there are so many people who don't know. And it's not so much that I did not want to share the information. It was I wanted to have accurate information. And so in the, initially I did not want to say too much because the questions that came to me were not the questions that I even was ready. It takes a while. You know, you go through those stages of grief, and I don't, I don't think I was ever in denial, but there was a period when I just was not ready to express it and to say to anybody else, this is what's going on. So once I had, okay, A, B, C, D, this is what it is, this is where we're going, this is what we're going to do, here's the plan of action, we have the biopsy results. We know now that I am uh, eligible for um, what I'm receiving is immunotherapy rather than chemotherapy. So, you know, these are some pluses and some things that I can talk with confidence about and some things that I can really talk um, from my experiences. And I feel that not only am I um, in the role of being given care, but I'm still a caregiver because my advice is still helping some of those who are 
just going through these procedures and processes. You know, we and I think you brought up something so important tonight about just that journey of acceptance. And like you said, the five stages of grief about denial, the anger, the bargaining, the depression before you get to acceptance. And everyone tonight has been talking pretty much about how they, that journey has led them to acceptance where they're, they're able to talk about it, you know. So it is. it has to be interesting to just kind of, I guess you're going to take anything from this experience about just seeing uh, what that journey's like. Was it, was it, did you find yourself angry or bargaining at all during this during that time, Patricia? Um, I don't. I cannot lay my hands on any anger or bargaining. If there was any anger, it was just that perhaps I should have done something a little sooner. Perhaps I should have been a little harder on my provider when I had the when I first mentioned the symptoms and I had um X ray because I actually was feeling um a tightness or a pain on the right side and I thought I had fractured ribs. So when I first had the um when I had the uh X ray and the rib fracture was ruled out but no one from the primary care level, ever said to me that we did see fluid in the pleural space. When I went to the pulmonologist and they viewed the old films, the fluid level, there was a level of fluid there at that time. So that had been like four months prior to seeing a pulmonologist. So that was the only thing that really kind of triggered me and made me think I was not aggressive enough. It wasn't that I was angry, like, why me, or why is this happening to me, or, uh, you know, I don't smoke, I've never uh, smoked. Um, all of those thoughts never came, but it was, uh, I guess, pressure on myself that maybe I didn't do enough, quick enough, and I should have pressured more action, uh, something to be done, because I knew something was not right. Well, you know, you're a detective, Patricia. It's <laughs> setting us up for our mystery podcast by being the best Oh, yes. I, you yes, know, you, I've known you for, yeah, it's a, another reason to tune in the mystery podcast. I've known you for almost 20 years. Uh, tonight, I was just, I'm, I'm just so happy that you could share that with us and my listeners, and especially, you know, you've been in my thoughts and prayers since you told me several months ago, and I, I kept my promise and didn't tell anyone, and I, I wanted to wait until it felt right for you. So uh, I'm just, I feel honored that you would do this tonight. And before I let you go, because we're wrapping up the show, we did say we would talk about Barry Manilow. I don't want people emailing me saying, what is AFib? So we're going to let you change this, uh, go back to being a health provider. Barry Manilow has AFib, which I guess is atrial uh, fibrillation. I don't even know if I can pronounce it correctly. What is that? What can you tell us about it in our final moments? Well, atrial fibrillation actually happens when the upper chambers are beating faster than the lower chambers of the heart, and that causes an irregular uh, racing heartbeat. Uh, a lot of people say they feel that their heart is skipping beats or that it's racing. I've heard uh, a I've heard that it feels like the the heart is jumping out of the chest at times, um, but the heart is definitely out of rhythm. Um, the electrical impulses are not, they're out of sync. 
so it's just not conducting the heartbeat the way that it should. So that that is. Yeah, that was surprising. Go ahead. Yeah, tell us everyone the no. Tell us everyone the website because I've heard that there's over 2.5 million people living with this, but a lot of people brush it off and and don't take it seriously. So what is the website for it? The website is stopafib.org, and that's F-T-O-P-A-F-I-B.org, stopafib.org. And do you know how they, if you if you felt like you were having the, that symptom of that racing or, um, like you said, that, that skipping a beat, how do they treat it? Is, is there something they do, or how do they test for it? Um, well, uh, uh, just a regular EKG can pick up that the heart is actually racing or that there is, it can diagnose atrial fibrillation. Uh, blood tests are sometimes indicated. Uh, doctors will usually want to rule out that, you know, it's not caused by the thyroid or some other substance. Um, it can be drug-induced. And so those are the kind of things that are really checked to rule out whether or not um, it's AFib and the cause of it. So if the heart is beating excessively and you're checking your pulse and you realize that you are skipping beats, then it's time to see your doctor and check out and figure out why you're having those irregularities. Um, Some people will experience chest pain, dizziness, fatigue, or being lightheaded. All of those are also some of the symptoms that uh, a person might have. So some of the treatment Sometimes it's treated simply by medications. Um, sometimes a procedure called cardioversion is necessary, and that's where the heart is kind of like electrically shocked to jolt it back into uh, sync. Um, but there are many things that that can be done to treat, and people can live usually good, productive lives with a fib, but when a problem does occur and you feel out of sync again, it's time to see your doctor. And, of course, not just wait, but have those routine visits and to make sure that medication or whatever is being regulated, right dosages, because a fib can be dangerous. It can lead to stroke, heart failure, dementia, and even to death. So the good news well, on, is on there is hope, <laughs> and it, it is treatable. Yeah. There is hope. We want to end on a good note. I, I do. Want to, that was like, wow, Patricia. You want to, I think Barry Manilow will be very impressed that we were raising awareness for that. And another reason to love him for being a health, a heart health advocate and, with, um, and doing all this work to let people know he's living with it and how to treat it and they could go on and perform. I want to thank all my guests tonight for um, being on the show, Fat Cat Anna, Allison Williams, Patricia Eddie Gentle, and, of course, Lorraine Brooks. Next month, it's our Not Our Normal podcast. It's our mystery podcast where we're playing characters and we'll be on the Jersey Shore. It's the ninth annual mystery podcast, and it's all about encouraging you to be a detective. But we're going to end the show tonight with another Barry Manilow song. And I want to wish you all well. I'm just so happy we could be healthy together. So let's listen to... I can't smile without you. How can I end without that song? I'm going to sing along, but I'll mute myself out. But enjoy. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks for tuning in.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.